We're in a three-part series on what does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus as we look at the early followers of Christ. And if you were here last week, or two weeks ago, I should say, you heard Steve Trice share his testimony, which was a wonderful testimony of what God can do in and through a person, and presented how he was discipled in a particular methodology known as one-on-one disciple-making. And so this evening, what we're going to do is we're going to look at how Jesus called his first disciples, what that looked like. And before we get into that, I'd like to offer a word of prayer. So if you would, let's pray together. Father, it is good to be in your presence. It is good to gather together in this particular way. Lord, as we open your word, help us open our hearts, help us hear from you, help us draw encouragement from your word, instruction from your word, inspiration from your word. And as the presenter tonight, Lord, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be pleasing unto you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Thank you for this opportunity. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, several years ago, I was serving as a pastor in a large church in Louisville, Kentucky, and I was in a meeting with several other pastors that also served on the staff of that church. And there was probably 10 or 12 of us in the room, and as we circled up together, the question on the floor was, how were you discipled? And the person to my right started with his answer, and they went counterclockwise around, so that meant I was going to be the last person to answer. And in this room of pastors, ordained clergy, some of them trained in Bible colleges and seminaries, all of them leading significant and large ministries in this big church, all were people, as far as I knew, who were godly people who loved the Lord. As they went around, every single one of them, some of them with tears in their eyes said, I was never discipled. I was never discipled. And emotions were raw as it went around the circle. Now something, many of you do not know me very well or know me at all, but sometimes I have the bad habit of poking the bear. You know what that means? So sometimes I can be devil's advocate, though you shouldn't be devil's advocate in church, right? So sometimes I can be a little bit of an antagonist to probe deeper and ask questions. And so everybody went around this circle and with tears in some of their eyes said, I've never been discipled, never been discipled, never been discipled. And then it was my turn. And I said, you know, it's funny to me that in this group of people, all who love the Lord, who are trying to walk faithfully with him, who are leading areas of ministry, none of us claim to have been discipled, and yet evidently, somehow, miraculously, we're pretty decent disciples because we're actually doing the stuff that God has called us to do. And what I thought of was that scene in a movie from about 30 years ago. Some of you might know the movie, The Princess Bride, you ever heard of that movie? In that movie, there's a guy named Bassini, and he keeps saying over and over in the early part of the movie, inconceivable. If you remember that line, at least you might remember it from that movie. And there's another character in the movie after Bassini over and over keeps going, inconceivable, inconceivable. Finally, a guy named Antigo Montoya says, you keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. And that scene from that movie reminds me of how many people, faithful people who love the Lord, who've been in church for many, many years, view the word disciple. When we think of disciple, what do we think of? What do you think of? 
For some of us, when we hear the word disciple, we picture hardcore. We picture like an army ranger, navy seal of spirituality. We picture the monk in the robe. We picture the minister in his or her study pouring over ancient dusty texts. We picture pious people always returning the shopping cart to the shopping cart corral, right? That's what we pick. That's a disciple. I, and what do we say when we do that? We go, I, I'm not really a disciple. I just go to church. I'm not really a disciple. I, I'm, just, I'm just a Christian. And so it is with that word. And hopefully at the end of this evening, we'll have a very clear idea of what the scriptures have to say about what a disciple is. And so let's start with a little bit of a, a language history lesson. The word disciple is a transliteration. A translation is like the Spanish word boino in English we translate and we say boino means good in English. That's a translation. A transliteration is when we take a word from another language and we just modify it a little bit and just steal it and use it in ours. And so the word disciple in English is actually a transliteration from Old Latin. It's a Latin word, discipulus. And the word discipulus is actually a translation from a Greek word, methetes. So in the Bible, written 2,000 years ago, the New Testament, every time the word methetes was used, when that was translated into Latin, they translated it discipulus. So when the King James Bible was being crafted, they looked at the old Hebrew and they looked at the old uh, the old Greek, and they looked at the Latin, and they said, what should we call this word methetes? Let's use the word discipulus because it's a very spiritually sounding word. And so discipulus became disciple, and so we start reading disciple instead of just translating methetes. Now, before I lose you, the real question is then, what does methetes mean? Well, methetes, or the word disciple, this is all it means. Learner, student, pupil, follower. That's it. Now, I hope I didn't burst your bubble because sometimes it's nice to have religious-sounding, churchy kind of words, and disciple is that kind of a word, but really it just means a learner, a student, a pupil, a follower. Nothing fancy, nothing fanatical, no army ranger type of stuff. Question for you, just to ponder because we don't want to embarrass anybody, but what kind of student were you in school? Were you a valedictorian or a salutatorian or maybe a flunkatorian? Maybe we have some GDatorians in the midst, right? You know, some of you are going like, I loved school. I, I aced school. Ask me about my GPA. I'm happy to tell you. And then other people are like, hey, it was beautiful out today, wasn't it? Nice sunshine. The weather was kind of nice. Let's not talk about grades. You could be, in other words, when we talk about the word disciple, what this means, translating it, you could be a good one. You could be a, an A student disciple, and you could be just barely skating by. That is something we'll explore in a few moments. So what the word disciple does not tell us, just to be clear, it doesn't tell us what a person is a disciple of. Just the word, the word disciple, you could be a disciple, if you are a communist, you would be a disciple of Karl Marx. 
If you were into architecture, you might be a disciple of Frank Lloyd Wright, the legendary architect. You could be a disciple of any number of things. You don't have to be a disciple of Jesus if you call yourself a disciple. The, the word disciple does not tell us the method. In other words, if you're a learner, a student, a pupil, a follower, you might, be, you might grow as, a, as such a person by reading books, attending a lecture, going to a class, being in a small group, having a conversation, one-on-one -on -one interaction. You might be a disciple by reading blogs or memorizing uh, various texts. There's various ways, methodologically, a person could grow as a disciple. And the word disciple does not, as itself, on its own, as it currently stands just there on the screen. It doesn't tell us the content. The content for a Christian, if you're going to be a disciple, might be the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 6, 7, and 8, full of all kinds of great material. It could be the, the, the epistle Paul wrote to the Romans. It's full of all kinds of depth of theology. The content for a disciple of, let's say, Apple material might be uh, the operating system of Macintosh computers and apps on the iPhone. The content of an of a engineer might be mathematical equations. In other words, what I'm trying to make clear is that when we use the word disciple, it will help us as we investigate this in the scriptures if we have a clear idea that the word in our context has a lot to do with our relationship with Jesus Christ. But outside of religious circles, the word disciple can be used just to mean somebody who's a student of something, using a method of something, and the content could be quite flexible. Now, that's so broad, we've got to narrow the scope for our intent tonight because I'm not going to talk about what the world calls discipleship. I want to talk about what we see in the New Testament in particular of how Jesus called his disciples, and our original source material that can be trusted is Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four Gospels. And each of the four Gospel writers has a point of view. They have their own reason for writing what they write. And the synoptic Gospels, the first three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, or synopsis, are similar. Matthew, Mark, and Luke write very similar stuff from a very similar point of view with different nuances. But John gives us something very different. John is unique. And so if you just look at the gospel accounts of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and you were to say, how did Jesus call the first disciples? If you just look at Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus shows up on the Sea of Galilee in all three of those. The, the first four disciples who are mentioned in Matthew, Mark, and Luke are in fishing boats, and Jesus recruits them from fishing boats. They drop what they're doing, and they follow him. Now, as a kid, I heard sermon after sermon that said, this is how Jesus did, this is how he called them. They were just fishing along. They had no idea who he was. He walked up on the shore, and he said, hey, follow me. And they didn't have anything better to do, so they dropped what they were doing and they followed him. Now, I have a daughter who's a sophomore in college. If she called me up and said, hey, I met somebody. They're really inspirational. I'm dropping out of school, and I'm following this guy. I would kidnap my daughter and reprogram her, okay? That sounds like crazy behavior. And if all we had was Matthew, Mark, and Luke to tell us the story, we would be puzzled why four guys seemingly had nothing better to do than follow a total stranger around. But thankfully, 
The Apostle John, who probably had access to Matthew, Mark, and Luke's Gospels, the Apostle John said, those three guys are missing a key element. They're missing a part of the backstory. And so the backstory starts with John the Baptist. And we have a nice little, this is, I always find it helpful to move things from a story as told to real life. And so here's a good map that will show us. This is all taking place somewhere down in here, the Jordan River. I like the laser pointer. Hopefully it doesn't make you dizzy. Okay. All right. And up here is Nazareth. This is uh, Jesus' home base when he's a kid, way down south off the map, below the drum kits, Bethlehem, where he was born. But right up here is where Jesus spends most of his life. If you love the history of that period of time, Sephoris here is a massive archaeological dig that was a Roman town, very likely, because Nazareth was such a small town, very likely. Joseph, who was um, the, the construction worker, carpenter, stepdad to Jesus, very likely, Joseph did a lot of construction work up here in Sephoris. Cana, which we'll factor in a little bit later in the story, is right up here. These are walking distance right here. You could, you could easily walk this right here. Capernaum is over here. Bethsaida is over here. I just point that out, real places. But we start down in here where, where there is a baptism going on. We start with John the Baptist. This is in the first chapter of the Gospel of John. So if you like to follow along in your own biblical text, it starts at verse 35. So it just kind of jump right into the middle of the story like it's a movie that's in motion already. It says, the next day, John the Baptist was again there with two of his disciples. In other words, he's down at the Jordan River. He's been preaching. He's been baptizing. And it says he's with two of his disciples. And as he's standing there with two of his disciples, he says, when he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, what do you want? Now just try to capture this scene in your mind. If you have an imaginative mind, they're down in a river valley. John the Baptist has been preaching to... It seemed like the nation. The nation would rotate in on holiday, if you will, and they would come and they'd hear this firebrand preacher. And they would hear John firing away and those who wanted to make some sort of proclamation of faith, some sort of newness, they would be baptized by John the Baptist. And John the Baptist had his own disciples, his own followers, his own students. Now, this is where this gets really interesting. We're about to meet the first five guys that become followers of Jesus. To our knowledge, they're the first five disciples of Jesus. And these five guys start out as disciples, so it would seem, of John the Baptist. And so John the Baptist says, behold, there's the Lamb of God. He takes away the sin of the world. And those two guys have enough good sense to leave John and follow the one who John pointed to. And John's message was repent for the kingdom of God is near. And this is an important thing for us to look into. What does that tell us? What does this little upfront piece tell us about Jesus' first disciples? The fact that the first five guys that follow Jesus start out as five guys sitting at the feet of John the Baptist. What does this tell us about them? Well, the first thing it tells us is that these were men who craved something more than the popular religion of their era. 
it was a religious group of people. The Roman occupiers, they were religious, deeply religious. They believed in gods after gods after gods. They just made up new gods. They loved all the gods. They worshiped them all. And then there were the Jewish people, and they worshiped the one true God. And then there were offshoots of everything around them. And so these were men who craved something more than all the popular religion of their era in their region. These were men who recognized the religious leaders in their community lacked depth and authority. There were a lot of religious leaders. There were a lot of men who were available to teach all kinds of stuff, and yet there was still this hunger and this thirst. This also tells us that these men, these five men who we're about to meet, they were willing to sacrifice personal comfort and be challenged by a remarkably prophetic teacher. John didn't tickle the ears. John called sin out. John told people to repent. If you showed up at John's camp hoping to have some encouraging message because you were downtrodden, he might beat you down just a little bit more. If you came in thinking, I think I have this all together, John would call something out. It was hard to be around John without feeling like, yeah, I need to repent of something. And John would talk about the kingdom being near. And these guys were willing to sacrifice personal comfort. They were challenged by this guy. They took time off of work. They were somehow able to make some sacrifices to be part of John's posse. And they were so attentive to John the Baptist that when he said jump, they literally jumped from John to Jesus. Now that one, that one's pretty, pretty remarkable in itself. Because John the Baptist had disciples. In fact, even when Jesus has his disciples, John the Baptist still has disciples. Even though Jesus is doing all kinds of stuff, John the Baptist still has disciples. Even when John's in prison, he still has disciples. A lot of John's disciples stayed John's disciples. They loved being around John. They loved what John stood for. John stood for good stuff. But these guys, they were attentive enough to John. When John said, that is the guy, they went after that guy. That tells us some stuff about them. And so they begin to follow Jesus. And they said, um, Rabbi, which means teacher. Remember, if we back up a verse, Jesus says, hey, what do you want? And they say, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come He replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying, and they spent the day with him. It was about four in the afternoon. And we learn that one, this is the first name we get, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. The other guy, there's two of them, remember, at the kind of the context of it all. There's two guys, two disciples with John. John says, behold the Lamb of God, or there's the Lamb of God, and they follow him. Andrew's the first one. The second one never names himself because he's presumably the author of this text. In fact, John never names himself in his text. He calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. Very humble guy. I love that nickname, by the way. I go around... I go around crossing saying I'm the pastor whom Marty loves. Don't tell him I said that, though. But but John does not reveal who he is, but Andrew reveals himself. And and they ask, where where are you staying? In other words, literally, they ask, where where are you dwelling? Where, where Where are you at? And you can almost feel this awkward question. I mean, ask yourself, what would you have asked Jesus? You're with John. 
the Baptist. You've been hanging out with John for quite some time. You're one of his, his disciples. He says, that's the guy. You go follow him. I, I don't know about you, but I would be tongue-tied. You ever been around somebody really famous? And you just, you don't know exactly what to say, and you're, you're kind of talking about the weather or whatever, but you, you just can't get anything out of your mouth? I think that's what happened. I think they went, oh, where are you staying? In other words, what are you about? What's your story? Who are you? Can we, could we hang out? It's almost like little kids. And there's this beautiful, very simple moment. And Jesus says, um, come and see. Which sounds very spiritual. Come and see, you know. Cometh and seeth, you know. It's beautiful. And yet, it, in just the simplicity of come and see, Jesus says, you want to find out? Just hang out together. Let's have a little campfire. Let's talk. And what we learn is that it was about four in the afternoon. And, and they did. They hang out with Jesus. Jesus says, you want to see, you want to see where I'm hanging out? Come, come and see. And then we read on because something really remarkable happens in the text. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah, that is the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. He brings Simon to Jesus. And Jesus looked at him and said, you're Simon, son of John. You will be Cephas, which, will be trans which when translated is Peter. But before we get into the significance of that one, we have to back up a little bit and enjoy and celebrate something that Andrew did. Andrew's the very first evangelist. Andrew meets Jesus hangs out with Jesus, and the first thing he thinks to do is, i got to go find my brother. Simon has got to meet this guy. It's the Messiah. And so Simon becomes the first person who really models the, the life of a, of a disciple. One of the attributes of the life of a disciple of Jesus is a person who tells other people about Jesus. Not necessarily in weird and awkward ways, but in just natural and normal ways. And here, Andrew, he just goes and finds Simon, who's evidently hanging out at the camp of John the Baptist, who very likely himself is a disciple of John the Baptist. And look how Jesus, look how Jesus greets Simon. Jesus, Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John, you will be called now, it's easy to miss this, but there's a, there's a tense issue. You are, right now, you will be in the future called Cephas. You're not Cephas yet, and when Cephas is translated, it means rock. Now, this is fun. If your name is Peter, most likely this is where your name became your name. Scholars don't know of anyone else referred to as Petrus before Simon is nicknamed Petrus. Because Petrus just means rock. That means that Simon's the very first rocky. How do you like that? Petrus just literally means, you know, a rock, a stone, something very solid, very strong. Now, as you read through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and even into Acts, you don't get the picture that Peter's all that Peter yet. You see a lot more Simon than you see Peter. 
But there's, uh, there's a beautiful principle we see just in this one verse, and it's just easy to glance by it. And in fact, this is one of the things that, that we ought to do when we approach the Scriptures, is we ought to take our time through the Scriptures. And as you read through it and read through it and read through it again, you look at all the intricacies of the language right there just in our own English Bible, and we begin to see layers and layers of meaning in it. Not trying to make the Bible say more than it should. We, we, we should not do that. We should never make the Bible do all kinds of um, calisthenics to make it agree with our points of view. We should always look at the, the clearest meaning of Scripture we can. But what we see in that is a principle that Jesus sees who you are, but he also sees who you can become. And I, I don't know about you, but I am so comforted by that. If that's true of Simon Peter, I think it's true of every one of us in this room. And maybe you're exactly the way you want to be right now. And when you look in the mirror, you go, perfection. And maybe as you read through the scriptures, you go, you know what? I could write this stuff. I'm, I'm that good. Maybe as you're reading Proverbs, you think to yourself, huh, I didn't know they came up with that. I've been saying that for years. But if you're like me, you read through the scriptures and maybe you reflect upon an interaction and you think, oh man, I'm such a bozo. I could have said that better. Just this Sunday, I was service hosting in this room and I come out on the platform first service. The microphone's on, but I didn't know it was a hot mic. And so I walk out and Josh in the worship team had just, if you were in here at the 915, it was really an extraordinary worship set. I wanted them just to do it again. And I came out, I was in a good mood, and he had said, hey, everybody, greet each other. So I walk up to Josh and whisper, hey, why didn't you tell everybody to greet each other with a holy kiss? Because I was in a good mood, and I thought that'd be funny, and it is in the Bible, by the way. There's a part in the Bible where it says, greet one another with a holy kiss, and I thought that'd be funny because I'm muted. My wife was sick, and she was home watching the service online. Guess what she heard? I get backstage, and my phone, there was a text message from my wife. Greet each other with a, with a holy kiss, question mark, exclamation point, question mark, exclamation point, which, by the way, means that wasn't a good idea. Don't say that. Now, fortunately, the auditorium didn't hear it, but this past weekend, we had just shy of 4,000 people stream the services because it was ice snowmageddon in this town, and so there were a lot of people watching online, and fortunately, everyone had a good sense of humor about it, but I tell you that story because I got backstage, and I'm like, I'm such an idiot. Why do I, I mean, I was just trying to be funny. It wasn't, it wasn't anything bad. I didn't, I didn't sin in the thing, but it could have been distracting from worship. Someone could have heard that and not understood what I was, that I was making a joke. Someone might this might have been their first time watching our service online and they'll never ever check our church out again and they won't even go to heaven because I messed up, you know? And I'm thinking, about, oh man, why can't I control what I have to say? And if you've ever had a moment like that, then that principle's really comforting, isn't it? Jesus looks at you and goes, you are such a bozo, but you're my bozo and you give, you give yourself to me over time, you'll be less of a bozo. And eventually, you, you'll be great. I'll take care of all that nonsense. All right, well, I could camp out on that, but we got, some, we got, some, we got limited time to cover a lot of stuff here. And so Jesus, um, we move on with the story, verse 43 in John 1. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee, finding Philip. He said to him, follow me. So Jesus is on recruitment mission. So Philip is there at the camp of of John the Baptist. Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. 
which is around the corner from Capernaum, which later becomes a base of operation, if you remember the map. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, son of Joseph. Nathanael's response is great. You ever said something thinking you weren't going to be overheard? And then later you're like, oh, this is that moment for Nathaniel. Verse 46, he says, um, Nazareth, can anything good come from Nazareth? Nathaniel asked. Philip just goes, uh, come and see. Philip goes to recruit his friend Nathaniel, and Nathaniel asks a, a, a really kind of an impertinent question Can anything good come out of Nazareth? You got to understand that um, in, in, uh, in that time, just like our time, there were biases around certain regions. And so in Judea, which was kind of more the highbrow area where Jerusalem was, in Judea, which was um, kind of up the hill, but it was south, that group of people viewed Galileans kind of like I've heard, now I'm new to Oklahoma, okay, but I've heard some of you Oklahomans say some downright unkind things about people from Arkansas. All right, not very nice of you, but there's references to being hillbillies and backwater and backwoods, and I don't feel that about Arkansas at all, okay, for the record. I feel that about Mississippi. But, <laughs> but we all have biases, don't we? And so what, what Nathaniel seems to be doing, what the scholars are suggesting is Nathaniel's gone, oh, wow, from Nazareth, can anything really significant and important come from hillbilly, hick town, backwater, uh, kind of uh, no-shoe-wearing, illiterate country bumpkin town such as Nazareth? Can anything good come from that? Now, what's important to note is that we later discover that Nathaniel, at the end of John, we discovered Nathaniel's from Cana. Cana is a small town to the north of Nazareth. It's the same territory. It's the same backwater hick town. It's kind of like Nathaniel is saying, can anything good come from the same squalid hillbilly territory I've come from? So it would seem that that's what Nathaniel, it doesn't seem that what Nathaniel's saying is, oh my, I'm too good for him, he's from Nazareth. It does not seem that that is what Nathaniel is saying. This isn't a statement rooted in arrogance. Very likely, it's a statement rooted in humility. And so he says, come and meet Jesus. And so when Jesus saw Nathaniel approaching, he said to him, here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. The old English is in whom there is no guile. I love that, no guile. And here, Nathaniel, just a moment ago, says, he's a hick. Nothing good comes from hick town. And when Nathaniel meets Jesus, Jesus goes, this guy's awesome. And Nathaniel says, how do you know me? That's a good question. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. Evidently, he was not in eyesight. Evidently, it was a distance away. And there's something there that has scholars mystified. They're not 100% sure what, because Nathaniel says, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Now, I'll be honest, that seems like a pretty big leap of a statement, considering Jesus goes, I saw you under fig tree. We're not exactly sure what Nathaniel's responding to. 
Some scholars have said, well, the fig tree was a symbol of the faithful people who followed the Torah, that the fig tree became a visual symbol, like the cross is a visible visual symbol for Christians. The fig tree was a visual symbol for uh, people of the book in that time. And so maybe when he says, I saw you under the fig tree, he was saying, I can see you're a faithful guy. Maybe. Maybe what it was is Nathaniel was an honest person, that there is no guile, no deceit, no chicanery. He wasn't trying to be deceptive. He wasn't trying to present himself more than he was. He was just humble. And Jesus calls him out and says, you really are a humble guy. And maybe Nathaniel goes, wow, you're not just being polite. You're, you're like, you understand who I am. But Nathaniel's response is incredibly powerful. And so he says, you are the, you are the son of God. And, and we have to ask ourselves, you know, what, what was it that, that they understood about what it meant that Jesus was the Messiah or that he was the king of Israel or the son of God? What did they get? They must have gotten enough. Did they have the full picture? Well, as we read through the Gospel of John, they did not have the full picture. But it's like a child. When a child starts to form words, when an infant starts to form words, it knows mama and it knows daddy, right? Mommy, daddy. And when that baby's a baby still in diapers, babbling mama and dada, it doesn't understand, this is my maternal caretaker, the one who birthed me and loves me so intently. The baby doesn't look at father and say, get a good job, you're paying my tuition. No, the, the baby just goes mom and dad, that's it. They don't, they don't understand the full ramifications, but as they get older, they understand what it means, mom and dad. And so it is with them when they see him and say, you're the Messiah, you're the king of Israel. They, they are just mouth and words at that point that have meaning, but will have far more meaning later. Well, we got to fast forward a little bit. We, um, let me back up one, one step before we get to Luke 5. If we just left off there and stayed with John, we would miss out a few details that Matthew, Mark, and Luke provide for us. But from this moment, Jesus has picked up Andrew, an unnamed disciple who we believe is John, the author of this gospel. He has picked up Simon, who he's renamed Peter, he's picked up Philip and Nathaniel, five guys. And in the second chapter of John, they go to a wedding together. They go up to the town of Cana, which now we know is Nathaniel's hometown. And they go to a wedding and there's some wine and it runs out and Jesus turns water into wine. And then, then later in, the, in John, they go to Jerusalem and Jesus cleanses the temple for the first time. And he has a conversation with Nicodemus where the famous verse, John 3, 16, emerges in that text. For God so loved the world. This is all in a conversation Jesus has with Nicodemus. Presumably, other people are there to hear this. And then there's a conversation in Samaria with a woman at the well. And then we get to the call of the disciples. Luke 5. One day, as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, or the Sea of Galilee, and this, by the way, is found in in Mark 1 and in Matthew uh, as well. One day, as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, or Sea of Galilee, the people were crowding around him and listening to the word of God. He saw at the water's edge two boats. 
left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and he asked him to put out a little from shore. Then he sat down and he taught the people from the boat. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of... Well, let me... Uh, we, I think we missed a verse in the slide. When, they had fin- when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out to the deep water and let down the nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master... We've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. We're the professional fishermen. You're a teacher. But because you say so, we will let down our nets. And the fishermen, tired and ready for rest, it says, when they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and they filled both boats so that they began to sink. And get this, this is so peculiar and so interesting. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' feet and he said, go away from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. Now, doesn't that seem like a little overreaction for a really terrific day fishing? Are you missing something? Am I missing something? And if you just read through it fast, it just looks like Simon is really an emotional guy. You ever see the TV show years ago, a TV show called um, Touched by an Angel? It was very popular 10, 20 years ago. And in the story, there was always some crisis and there were these angels just appearing as normal people. And then at the end of the episode, all of a sudden there'd be some glow. And then the person would be like, ta-da, all this time you thought I was your friend. I'm an angel. And the people would be like, wow, that's neat. Thanks for showing up. And it was always a fun show and it was pretty benign. It wasn't offensive. It was nice. People liked it. But at the end of the show, my wife made me watch this show over and over. And I always protested of watching the show, mainly because they had all kinds of theological issues. But one of the reasons I didn't like it is I would always point out, and it would kind of irritate her, I'd say, this isn't how people meet angels in the Bible. Most of the time in the Bible, when an angel shows up, people are like, I'm going to die. They freak out. Most of the time when an individual realizes that they are in the presence of divinity, whether it's a messenger, an angel, or some sort of manifestation that God has revealed himself, usually the people freak out. And Simon has been hanging out with Jesus since John the Baptist. Peter has been with Jesus probably by this point a year, year and a half. They have... They have traveled together to Cana to a wedding. He's seen water turned into wine. That was pretty neat. Maybe that's why he stayed with him a little longer. He, he went down to Jerusalem, saw him cleanse the temple, saw some passion, heard him do some teaching. He saw how he treated a woman in Samaria. It was quite remarkable. And here we are, many months, several months at least later. He knows Jesus. He's seen a miracle or two, but something in this Something in this locks in for Peter, and Peter realizes, I'm in the presence of divinity. Oh no, divinity's in my boat. Please get out of my boat. Please get away from me. You know, there's this interesting thing is that the closer we draw to God in sincerity, the more unworthy we feel. The more that we become aware of who he truly is, his sovereignty, his majesty, his goodness, There's um, two theological concepts of God. One is his imminence. This is his closeness, his proximity. This is like when you feel the warmth of his embrace. And then there's another theological principle that's very true, and it's his transcendence. And this is his other, and he's, he's removed, he's sovereign, he's Lord, he's king. And the scriptures show us both of these things about God. 
And they're both to be embraced simultaneously. The imminence of God gives us comfort. It's full of grace, but the transcendence of God, this is something that, this is why many of the writers of Scripture said the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. When you really think about who God truly is, are you just incredibly comfortable with that? He's the creator of everything we see. All of life is held together by him. We know what we know because of him. That without his sustaining work, holding all of the earth together, all of the world together, it spins out of control. And then that ends up in your boat. I, I tell you what, if I was Peter, I'd, I'd have probably the same reaction. But there's some good news in that uh, Jesus doesn't get out of Peter's boat, but he lifts him up and he says, uh, drop your nets, I'm going to make you fishers of men. And they do. They set it aside. They set aside a business and they turn it over to others and they walk away from it and they continue to journey with Jesus. Maybe, maybe in the months prior, it was from time to time and now it's more of a full-time deal. We're not exactly sure what differentiated before and after, but there was something significant in it. And so we see Jesus now has picked up um, five at John the Baptist, but he's made the relationship a somewhat more significant one. And now we meet James because we haven't mentioned James in the first chapter of John. Maybe he was there and just not mentioned, but he is mentioned this time in the boat. And so it is Andrew, it is Peter, it is James, and it is John in this story around the boat. Well, I want to hit one more story of the call of a disciple, and this one is quite controversial. Now, not controversial to us, but it was controversial in its day. And this takes place in the town of Capernaum on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. And it says, um, let's move from here. Um, As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man, Matthew, sitting at the tax collector's booth. This is in the ninth chapter of Matthew. As Jesus went from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at a tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. Now, Matthew has a good paying job. This is a high professional job. This is a job that earned the kind of income that even today people would say, I would like to earn that kind of income. Matthew would have had finer things dressed in finer clothes. He would have been of remarkable financial situation. Now, generally the people in the community hated him because he was a tax collector. In fact, Wikipedia, I love uh, Wikipedia. I go on there from time to time and see what they have to say. If you've never checked it out, I encourage you to do so. You always have to check them. They are an open source, which means just about anybody can put stuff on there. So sometimes they get it right, sometimes they get it wrong. But this is what Wikipedia said about the calling of Matthew. It says a tax collector could either be an independent contractor with the Roman government who paid a fee to Rome to obtain the right to extract taxes from the people in a certain area with an added fee for the collector and his employees. So it just kind of explains it. Or he might also be a tax collector for Herod Antipas. Capernaum was an area with a high traffic of people and merchants. This is what I love. This is why I wanted to share it. I read this. I had to copy it just for this line because I think it's hilarious. In any case, Levi as there's another name, Matthew, would have been a very unpopular individual. It's an understatement. Anybody here have a high opinion of the IRS and wish they could pay more taxes? Anybody? 
Just show of, that's weird, no, show of hands. Just for those of you watching online, no show of hands in the room. Any of you work for the IRS as a tax collector, don't put your hand up. I, you, if you work for the IRS, you probably tell people you deliver pizzas because that everybody loves. And paying taxes, nobody loves. Nobody loves it now, nobody loved it then, but back then it was laced with corruption. Back then the tax collector made extra money by charging you extra money. And so the calling of Matthew would have been an intensely controversial call, even in Jesus' inner circle. And it says, while Jesus was having dinner, Matthew becomes a disciple. Jesus says, join my team. And Matthew stops what he's doing. He retires or resigns from his position, and he resigns his commission, and he throws a party. And it says, while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners. By the way, sinners, this is Matthew's account. Matthew's the one calling them sinners. Jesus isn't calling them sinners. I'm not calling them sinners. Matthew himself says, I threw a party at my house and a lot of my buddies from the tax agency came as well as other sinners and ate with him and his disciples. So Jesus is there with his disciples. I, I wonder if the disciples are like, this is awesome. The food here is fantastic. Or if the disciples are like, this place is gross and it gives me the creeps. I don't know. The Bible doesn't give us any editorial comments except from the Pharisees. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And that's, a, that's a great way to defile yourself. On hearing this, Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I go and but go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice, for I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. In his book, uh, The Training of the Twelve, A.B. Bruce, he suggests that maybe there's um, three main arguments for this whole, the doctor goes and helps the sick argument. It could be the professional argument that doctors go where sick people are. It could be a political argument. If I help sick people and sick people get well, what happens? The sick people end up being satisfied customers and they tell everybody else where to get the appropriate medicine. And so it helps the whole movement along. So it could be a political argument, a, 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 a political argument, or there's the natural instinct argument. I hit the wrong button. It's the natural instinct argument, which just means, hey, if you're a doctor, you like to help people, and you see somebody that needs help, you help them, and that's what you do. That's what A.B. Bruce suggests. But Jesus, he says to the Pharisees, look, I wish you would learn what this means. I wish you would mercy, not sacrifice. I'm a doctor, and a doctor goes to sick people. And now, a cautionary note, and it's important for us to just spend a couple moments on this. This is a very cautionary note. It's very popular in our culture today. Since the 60s, since many revolutionary thoughts came in, and if you're a baby boomer, it's your fault, okay? But this thought came in, and it kept, and it swept into the church. If Jesus was alive today, man, I've heard this since I was a little kid. If Jesus were alive today, he'd be, he'd be at the nightclubs and bars, man. He'd be where sinners are at. And I think we need to be cautious with that line of thinking. It's not to say he wouldn't be there, but that is a massive oversimplification of Jesus' methodology. Jesus says, I go and I help sinners. So it's an oversimplification to go, where would sinners be? Well, they'd be here and here and here, so he'd go there. Maybe he wouldn't. We also have to be cautious because in Jesus' day, there were nightclubs and there were bars. And nowhere in the Gospels does Jesus go there. He might have. We just don't have it recorded. 
It would be an argument from silence, and we always have to be careful about making any sort of argument from silence. I think Jesus would have done this, and therefore, arguments from silence. People do it all the time now. If Jesus was to buy a car today, he'd definitely buy, he'd definitely buy a battery-operated car, better on the environment, because he'd be environmentally conscious. I heard one guy say if Jesus were alive today, he'd buy a Ford Expedition, because only that would hold 12 disciples. Don't know what he'd buy today, but we have to be careful from arguments of silence. Jesus doesn't show up in nightclubs and bars, and we just have to be really thoughtful about saying that. Jesus, um, when we look at what he did, he spent time, get this, he spent time with Pharisees, Nicodemus most notably. He sent, uh, spent time with a member of the Sanhedrin. We don't have anything of the encounter. We just know that Joseph of Arimathea, a member of the ruling class, was a disciple of Jesus, so he would have had some interaction with Jesus. We don't know the nature of their interactions, but he spent time with a member of the Sanhedrin. He spent time with fishermen and general laborers. He spent time with men and women and kids. There isn't a profile of the kind of person Jesus spent time with. He loves the whole world. So he spent time with the whole world. If you have a PhD, he, he loves you. And if you have a GED, he loves you. And if you don't have either of the above, he loves you. He would go to you. The reason he spent time with sinners, I think, is because they were honest and understood their condition. But more importantly than that, they spent time with him. Pharisees could have spent time with him. They go to his, get this, they go to his disciples and go, hey, ask Jesus why he spends time with those people. Why don't they go to Jesus and ask Jesus why Jesus spends time with those people? They don't even have the gall to go spend time with Jesus to ask that question. Fortunately, Jesus overhears it and is like, hey, 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 let me answer that. But I think that that's important for us to, to let that sink in, that Jesus loves sinners. But there's something that the Pharisees are missing in all this. The Pharisees are missing. I think we have the verses again. While Jesus was having dinner, they say, why does he eat dinner with sinners in these these tax collectors. And Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. And I kind of help, I can't help but wonder, did he lean in and did he look him in the eye and go, I'm here for sick people. And at that moment, there should have been like a, oh yeah, yeah, I, you know, I, I do think I have it all together. But when I'm honest at night and I'm falling asleep, I do, I, I am kind of more honest at that moment. I don't have it all together. I'm kind of a sick person too. What is the thing you do for sick people? And the Pharisees miss out on a beautiful opportunity to own up to who they are. Well, there's a, there's a because we're uh, losing time, some of you go, well, when did he call the 12? When, did, when does the 12 thing happen? Is it 12 yet? I thought it was 12 at the very beginning. It wasn't 12 at the very beginning. Or maybe it was 12 at the very beginning. But when he calls the 12... Whoop, back. When he calls 12, this is in Luke uh, 6, verses 12 through 16, but this is also recorded in Matthew, the 10th chapter, so you can look at it there as well. It says, One of those days, one of those days, Jesus went out on a mountainside to pray. This is an important thing he's about to do, so he's going to pray. He spent the night praying to God the Father. Sometimes when you read that, you're like, well, I thought Jesus is God. He is God. He's God the Son. When you see God, you could just say God the Father. And he spent the night praying to God the Father. And when morning came, he called his disciples to, God, to him. Now, not, not the 12, but a whole bunch of people. And he chose 12 of them, meaning there's more than 12 of them because it's kind of awkward. It's like if you're like picking a team and you're like, all right, everybody gather around. You're all in. No, he gathers a whole bunch of people and he picks 12. And it says he designates these people to be apostles. They have special responsibilities. Simon, who in all the lists occurs first, 
known as Peter, his brother Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew. By the way, you'll notice Nathaniel's missing, and most of the scholars assume Nathaniel and Bartholomew are the same guy. My name's William. Never gone by William. Always gone by Bill. I was Billy when I was little, but I went to Bill when I was nine because I was grown up. I told them that. And so Bartholomew, Nathan, probably the same dude. Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon, who is called the Zealot, Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. And Judas is always introduced that way. And so it's interesting is that when, when we meet and interact with the term disciple around Jesus, it's the 12, but it's more than the 12. It's a whole cadre of people. Wouldn't it be neat to know who the other people were? Maybe some of the people who didn't make the cut? We do know. We know two of the names. We know two of the names that must have been there that morning when Jesus prayed. They, maybe they were alternates for jury duty. We don't know why they didn't make the cut. But we meet them in the first chapter of Acts after Judas is scared is done and they go from 12 down to 11. They go, hey, we need 12. Okay, let's pick an alternate. It says in Acts 1, it is necessary to choose one of the men. Here was the qualification. One of the men who'd been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus was living among us beginning from John's baptism, John 1, to the time when Jesus was taken from us. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So this is a person. The qualifications for being the 12th apostle to replace Judas Iscariot is they had to have been with us the whole time from John the Baptist, and they had to have seen the resurrection. Now what's really wild is we, we don't see their names before this. So they nominated two men. Joseph called Barsabbas, also known as Justice and Matthias, and poor, I always feel bad for poor Barsabbas Justice. The guy's got two names, and twice he misses out on being in the inner 12. Then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which one of these two you've chosen to take over this apostolic ministry, which Judas left to go where he belongs. And then they cast lots, and the lot fell on Matthias. And so he was added to the 11 apostles, Matthias Barsabbas, they'd been there the whole time, sort of silent partners. Now, some people would go, see, this proves it. The Bible, uh, they can't figure itself out. It's full of mistakes. You ever gone on a trip with some friends? Maybe when you were a kid to summer camp, or, or maybe as a family, you went on vacation with, and you took the children with you and they were kids, and you come back from uh, the vacation, you all experience the same thing, and you go, hey, what was the best part of the trip? And they all look at the trip differently. You ever had that? And that's what Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John do. It is not inconsistent, and it is not an error. It's just not that important until we get to this part. And so they add uh, Matthias to the mix. And it says that um, if you look back, you, one of those days, if we go back to the call, one of those days Jesus went out on the mountainside to pray, and he spent the night praying to God, and in the morning came, he called his disciples. So we know at least it was 14 people, probably a lot more than that. Jesus called these people. And uh, what's interesting that is on this list, and I want to just make a quick note of this before our time is completely up. There's a 
Matthew, of course, the tax collector, but there's also a guy on there named Simon the Zealot. In Hebrew, it's Kanai, uh, they just, it's the Greek word is zelotes, which just means a zealous person, zealous for God. And the zealots weren't just deeply religious people. Simon the Zealot, to be of the faction of zealots, was a person who was so zealous for God, they committed what today we might call terrorist activities in order to inspire people to rebel against the Roman government so that the Romans would be so annoyed that they would just leave. That was their big hope. And so you have to picture, this is a terrific moment in the ministry of Jesus, and it's instructive. And the reason that I tell us this is this gives us a little insight into how Jesus interacted with people. On one hand, he pulls a guy in who is a collaborator to the government, and over here, he pulls in a guy who, quite frankly, has sympathies towards terrorism in his country at the time. And they're all around one campfire together. Can you imagine the sparks? Let, let's contemporize it. I, I'm not trying to make anything political in this statement, but imagine if we started a small group with um, someone who's just a deep, 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 deep appreciator, advocate for Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. If you know who she is, she's a, quite an outspoken, uh, more liberally persuaded uh, politician from New York City. Let's say in our church we take that person and we start a small group with a person who is a dyed-in-the-wool strong advocate of President Trump. Wouldn't that be a fun small group to sit in? Hopefully there'd be no bloodshed. Now that's almost a small scale of what it must have been like when Matthew and Simon the Zealot circled together. Now I bring this up not for any political reasons. Why I bring this up is is to Jesus it didn't appear to matter a person's political persuasion, their professional background, their income bracket, their religious history. That, that did not matter to him. There was one quality, there was one quality that seemed to be essential above all other qualities. And if you're taking notes, here it is. The qualities of a disciple of Jesus. Number one, they follow Jesus. And that's it. I put the other two on there just to trick you. That's it. There's not a second one. There's not a third one. The quality of a disciple of Jesus is a person who was willing to follow Jesus. To just follow him. To do as he did. To obey what he said needed to be obeyed to follow in his steps. In fact, the, the apostle John, he got it right in 1 John 2, 5 through 6. He says this, but if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. If anyone obeys Jesus' word in context, love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know they are in him. This is it. You want to know? Lean in. You want to know if someone, if somebody truly is in Jesus, whoever claims to live in him must do what? What do they have to do? Whoever claims to live in Jesus must live as Jesus did. Some translations say walk as Jesus walked. Now, on, on one level, that just sounds so remarkably simple. We try to complicate it. We make religion. We make some sort of rube 
Goldberg mechanism of spirituality that somehow makes it all almost impossible for normal people to do. And the Apostle John just synthesizes all of it. He cuts right to the heart of it, and he says, if you want to be a disciple of Jesus, it's, it, it, it will cost you everything. And it'll cost you nothing. And it'll be so simple, you will want to make it cluttered and complicated. Because it's easier to do like the checklist stuff. But to live as Jesus did, to live out, the great commandment to love. I don't know about you, but learning to love the Lord my God with all my heart and mind and soul and strength. Any of you find that as easy as I do? That's so simple. To live out the great commission, to go into all the world and to, to share the gospel and to teach other people to, to, to obey everything Jesus taught. It's so simple. But it's pretty tough, isn't it? Now, before any of us get kind of um, proud of either our spiritual heritage, if, if we've been around the church for any length of time and we go, yeah, I knew that. The Apostle Paul always kind of puts it in check. And I want to conclude with this verse because I think it's helpful. It says, um, it says brothers and sisters, this is the very beginning of 1 Corinthians, the first chapter at the end of the first chapter. It says, brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. When you first became disciples of Jesus, this is from day one. On day one, this is what you were. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. In other words, some of you were, but not many. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not, to nullify the things that are, so that no one can boast before him. What's Paul getting at? He's saying, hey, look, don't get too proud. Don't think to yourself, I got this figured out. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, our holiness, our redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let, no, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Isn't that a terrific reminder? And so when we, when we look at what Jesus established by way of paradigm of what it means to be a disciple, it is so simple. And it is a lifelong learning process. And that's why, that's why the word disciple actually is an apt, good, fitting word for anyone who steps foot into the church. They might be a baby disciple they might be a maturing disciple. They may be a disciple that takes the whole thing seriously, and they might be a disciple like Judas who bails out and betrays. But, but the disciple who is faithful is the one who endures and finishes to the end, the one who walks as Jesus walked. And with that, I'll close us in prayer, and we'll be dismissed for the night. Thank you, Lord, for this fine group of people who've been so attentive Lord, hopefully you have met us. We trust that you have as your word has been opened and it has been read. Lord, it is a privilege for us to join together this evening and explore the message you have for us. We're so thankful that you've given us this opportunity. We pray that you give us strength of the journey and help us to be faithful disciples who endure. We're thankful for this and we pray it in Jesus' name. 
Amen. Well, thanks so much for this evening. And uh, next week, Terry's back.